The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. The leaders of China and India must be laughing in America for President Joe Biden's war on inexpensive and reliable coal-fired electricity. For China and India are planning to raise their domestic coal production by 700 million tons per year. That's about 100 million tons more than the total coal production expected in the U.S. this year. India, in particular, has gone public with its intentions to open new coal mines and increase coal production. It has even celebrated the decision publicly. Jay, does India and China know something about coal that Biden does not? Well, Biden knows nothing. I mean, the whole administration is a joke and uh, will We'll be using coal and everything. The idea of ending fossil fuels, a lot of talk in this country. It can't happen because the people will scream. Coal is growing around the world. Actually, more coal is being mined now than ever. And uh, India and China are not alone. Germany has gone back to coal. They can't afford the fact that their wind and solar has been a failure and their energy prices have tripled. So, you know, there's a lot of sound and fury about getting rid of fossil fuels. And sadly, you know, most of the world actually think we have a problem with emitting carbon dioxide, which greens the earth and allows life on the earth. But it isn't true. And we're reaching a point where we'll turn the corner and people will realize that those that are trying to get rid of fossil fuel are in fact evil and care nothing about the lives of the common man. So we'll learn about this a great deal from our guest, Tom. So you introduce him now. Yeah, sure. Our guest today is Vijay Jayaraj, a research associate with the Arlington, Virginia-based CO2 Coalition. Vijay is also a contributor for developing countries for the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. He holds an MS in Environmental Sciences from the University of East Anglia in the UK and a BS in Engineering from Anna University, India. Vijay spent three years at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver as a graduate research assistant studying climate impacts on marine life. He writes about CO2 benefits, energy, and climate science, most often from the viewpoint of the developing world. Vijay is based on Bengaluru, if that's how you pronounce it, Bengaluru, India. So welcome to the show, Vijay. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> Great. Vijay, we understand that there is a resurgence of the use of coal in India in the past year. 
Could you explain the magnitude of it? Yeah, uh, I mean, India is a developing country and uh, any developing country in the world is following the proven path of energy liberation, which is to use as much fossil fuels as possible. And India has been doing this for a while now. They realized that if they are to achieve energy surplus, that is meeting the demand, uh, which in itself was a huge challenge for uh, developing countries. So uh, India has made intentional efforts to increase its uh, coal in the recent two decades, I would say. And especially last year, when the country just came out of the two-year pandemic uh, hiccups, it increased the electricity demand uh, throughout the country. And we are talking about 1.3 billion people. So the the official uh, uh, number says that there was a rise of 20% in demand and consumption of coal. So that's a lot. And so, in fact, the government is trying to increase coal production, increase coal consumption, and uh, increase the capacity of coal power plants as well. These are things that are never discussed in the mainstream media, unless uh, with a negative connotation. So I would, uh, I would inform the listeners that there is a huge resurgence of coal here in India. What is the estimate of the coal reserves in India today? How, how widespread are they throughout the country? How easy are they to get at? Yeah, as per the official government source, uh, which is dated 2019, the estimated reserves is around 300 billion tons of coal. So we are talking about thermal coal, the coal uh, that is used for electricity. So if if we are to do a little bit of mathematics, India's average annual consumption of thermal coal is around 700 million tons. So with 300 billion tons of estimated reserves, it is expected that India will be able to use its own coal for electricity for the next 400 years. Wow. (laughs) 400 years. That's great. That's great news. (laughs) <laughs> that really is amazing. Now, who owns India's uh, coal? What does the government own? How much is in private hands? It is largely government-owned. So just to inform the readers, the entity is called Coal India Limited. So it's a government entity. Uh, the government formed this uh, to manage and produce and transport coal in India. It also happens to be the largest coal producer in the world because of the sheer volume of the entity. So uh, it's 80% of all coal mines in India is owned by the government. The rest 20% is uh, privatized. And uh, now the government is trying to auction new and existing coal mines for private players to buy and use them because uh, the government realizes that uh, it cannot do everything on its own, not especially when there is a forecast of uh, 63% increase in coal demand uh, in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Well, this is wonderful news. That's great. Yeah, that really is good news. And it sounds the whole idea of privatizing more of your mineral resources the way they are here in the United States is uh, really good. Our government owns the mineral resources on government lands and they own way too much of uh, the land. But in this country, if you own the land, you own the mineral resources below that land. And that is not true in, uh, in most other countries. So uh, it's really great that India is moving toward a more privatizing. I read that the opening of new coal mines will provide jobs uh, for young people. How young can a coal mine worker be? And 
why is it considered a good job for youth vijay just to understand the context here uh, india has 300 million people in poverty so that's uh, nearly the size of population of us living in actual poverty so uh, any job for them at a, at a beginner stage would be very helpful and a lot a lot of uh, developmental activities have generated jobs and the coal sector the energy sector has been one of them the government alone employs 272000 employees in its coal industry wow so so yeah. just coal india limited the government's coal arm employs 272000 employees mm. so you can see uh, when a coal mine is uh, for instance auctioned uh you have uh, jobs related to mining transportation and other allied activities that take place uh generating a lot of uh, jobs for people who live in hamlets and villages around that area so it is indeed a a, a big job generator mhm there mu- you're much more practical than we are over here <laughs> yeah. how much electricity does coal power actually provide in india uh just like china more than 70% of our electricity comes from coal so that is a lot of electricity from coal and uh, the forecast suggests that we will continue to use coal uh, as the primary source of electricity in fact a few of government documents indicated that even by the year 2050 coal will be the primary electricity source here in india mm-hmm. are you using natural gas or nuclear at all Yeah yeah we do use natural gas but not as much as Europe or the US uh, and nuclear is yes, we use a lot of nuclear but the percentage contribution in the total uh, generation capacity is very less that's because uh, india is still a developing country to continue build uh, nuclear plants in a rapid manner it it has a lot of restrictions so uh, but we are actively trying to increase our nuclear capability and uh, we have a lot of uh, help from uh, russia in terms of uh, reactors that are being used at the nuclear plants state of art reactors and uh, the the particular province that i hail from it in itself has a couple of nuclear stations that are very powerful so yes the country is looking at nuclear but it just wants to make sure that uh, nobody robs them of their access to fossil fuels Mm-hmm. And I guess Canadian reactors, the Kandu reactor, it got going in India quite a few years ago, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, and also uh, it's good to mention at this point that India wants largely to be uh, neutral in terms of global geopolitics, and energy is one of the primary reasons. It wants energy resources all across the board from all the countries uh, because the demand is so high. So that's one of the reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And aren't you going to be the most populous country starting next year? Uh yeah, that's true. Uh most populous and uh I would say uh slightly behind China in terms of the economy. So that's an headache uh, for the government and uh, they need r- rapid GDP growth and for that you need a very stable energy sector without mm-hmm. any hiccups and without any uh you know disruptions. Mhm. Have you tried to reduce population or or limit it in any way as uh, China did in a very bad way their one child family has turned out to be a disaster for them uh, their population growth is zero because uh, many people decided having no children was a good idea and so they're they're not growing anymore but you are growing uh, you would probably think too rapidly to government do anything 
you know, to reduce the rate of growth? Well, uh, as an average citizen, I think there is not much pressure from the government regarding this issue as of now. So there were a lot of population control measures in the 70s and the 80s. But India, uh, with a growing GDP, I think the government is not so uh, afraid of people having more children. In my opinion, in the last decade and a half, uh, there has been less pressure from officials or authorities regarding how much children you can have. And uh, families that earn well tend to have uh, more than one child. Yeah. So you're not concerned then about population growth? I would say no, uh, concerned in terms of how to meet the demand uh, for resources. Yes. And the government is taking steps to uh, achieve that, but are not concerned about the actual increase in population. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Circling back for a moment to coal and nuclear, you had said, DJ, that the estimate is that uh, India has 300 years of coal. The United States estimates that we have uh, 800 years of coal, and your somewhat increase in nuclear is really happening all over the world. And people always ask me, what do we do when we run out of coal and uh, natural gas and other things? I'm quite sure the world will run on nuclear power within the next 300 years. It's actually the most prolific and, believe it or not, uh, the safest, that less people have uh, have perished in the development of nuclear power than any other uh, source. And uh, so that's where we will eventually go. The anti-nuclear people who just spread lies about nuclear energy have, have held it back, but they're dying out. Does, uh, Vijay, does, does India need to import coal at this time? Uh, yeah, uh, India does need to import coal, especially high-grade uh, cooking coal from abroad for its aluminium plants. So the that particular grade of coal uh, is not in abundance in India. So we do import coal. And uh, so just to give you an idea, Indonesia, Australia, and South Africa are our key markets for import. So we import from there. But surprisingly, this year, especially in the last two months, the imports from Russia has been increasing. So... Uh-huh. And uh, government has announced that over the next 13 years, they would gradually increase import of coal from Russia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How much of India is electrified, Vijay? The official government statements say that India is 100% electrified, but still many of them do not have stable and reliable electricity. Uh, By that, I mean that kind of electricity that a citizen in in US or Canada would be uh, enjoying. So here there would be power cuts. The average amount of uh, electricity the person receives today in, in, in India would be around 22 hours. Still, there's two hours of blackout uh, happening randomly. So for various reasons, the transmission network is still growing and developing and the country itself is developing. So uh, still a lot of work pending regarding the transmission networks. So that is one of the reasons. Uh, as far as the amount of electricity is concerned, India was able to achieve energy surplus in 2017. So oh, we, wow. yeah, we got our independence in 1947. That is two years after the World War II ended. Uh, but since then, we've never achieved to produce enough electricity to meet the demand. So mm-hmm. it was in 2017 that we uh, met 
uh, demand and that was possible because of two decades of coal proliferation so mm-hmm. we increase our coal increase our coal increase our coal and finally we were able to generate electricity and my childhood in late 1990s and 2000s were all spent uh, in darkness like evening uh, every every house ha- had candles uh, and oil lamps that's how students who went to school studied at night uh, i'm not talking all across the board but many towns and villages had frequent parkets Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, you mentioned World War II. My father was stationed in India in World War II, and they were working to stop the Japanese from taking over India, which would have been a disaster, of course, because India had a fantastic army. But uh, yeah, he taught us some Hindi, actually. When he would get us going for um, to go skiing, he'd say, Jaldi, Jaldi. And then he'd say, Bini Kapani Lao, which means hurry, hurry, rush, rush, uh, get me a glass of water. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. What part of India are you from again? Uh, I'm from the southern part. We speak a completely different language group, uh, oh. but I live. I lived across uh, different cities like New Delhi, Bombay, uh, Chen, Madras. Uh, so I'm familiar with a couple of languages. Yeah. Yeah. In the middle of the night, where you are right now? Uh, no. Uh, I actually it's uh, it's around 10 p.m. here in. Here in oh. southern India, yeah. Okay, good. So we didn't keep yeah. you up all night. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Vijay, I've been fortunate to travel through India working on water supply projects for the uh, UN, and I've uh, enjoyed pretty much all the cities you've mentioned very much. But compared to India, Africa, all of Africa, in terms of electrification, is in terrible shape. I mean, they have so many people that uh, are in darkness uh, more than 12 hours uh, a day. They have a a long way to go. And part of it is that uh, the United Nations and other countries make them only build wind turbines and and, uh, solar farms, which do not electrify them by any stretch of the imagination uh, 24 hours a day. And they have uh, really been dissuaded for developing any fossil fuels. It's part of the whole global warming climate change uh, hoax that is actually intended to slave many of the people in the nation. And it's uh, really absolutely a terrible thing. So it really is exciting to learn how well India is doing. Now, you said early on that 300 million people among India's 1 billion, 0.3 billion people are considered in poverty. Now, is electrification... Uh, factored into poverty? In other words, you, you can be in poverty but have electricity, or when you don't have electricity, does that throw you into the poverty area? That's a good question, actually, uh, because I think it's good to introduce the term energy poverty. It's quite difficult to classify what kind of pov- poverty people are in, but it's understood that uh, the more energy the country has, the more people are lifted out of energy poverty they'll have higher chances of climbing up the socioeconomic ladder. So, for instance, more than 500 million people in India do not have a refrigerator or a washing machine, you see. So, uh, that means a woman in a household is spending her day washing the clothes. Uh, so, 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 we cannot say that uh, since a home is electrified, they are out of poverty. It is quite complex and... Uh, 
uh, you need energy poverty to be reduced as much as possible and a strong energy se- sector that propels the economy manufacturing industries and other industries so it's a collective progress that will enable people come out of poverty wow. does that answer your question or uh, yeah, yes I- it de- it definitely does and i want to yeah. make uh, an observation vj from my travels through india and see if you support it and you talked about the women washing clothes when i traveled through the poorest areas i always noted that people's clothing was very clean and neat i wonder if you know that's just part of the the culture that no matter what your status is you want to look your best am i right or is is that just an anecdote uh yeah that's uh, partly right like people uh, do take effort to uh, wear a good set of uh, dress based on whatever economic class you are in the best you could get people wear that and uh, presentation uh, is given importance in lot of places uh, especially i i i myself i'm surprised when i go to some villages and they are squeaky clean the environment is clean and people's houses are clean so uh, yeah you are right in your observation mm, yeah and you said a half billion people don't have washing machines Yeah I mean <laughs> even when I got married uh, getting a washing machine uh, we had to wait until we could afford a front load washing machine mm-hmm. so many households uh, that do have washing machine still have the top load washing machine and, mm-hmm. and uh, it is it is during the past two decades that uh, india has really developed and with the it sector uh, booming there has been a lot of progress uh, kids who uh, earn well and bring their parents out of poverty that kind of stories are emerging a lot here mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. i think uh, and if we are to think about us and canada that would be uh, right after the world war when the economy uh, started growing again and you know that kind mm-hmm. of a situation over here in the developing countries mm-hmm. yeah it's amazing how often when we call our it people here in ottawa canada that we get people in india and it gives me a chance to try out my hindi but you say you actually don't speak hindi as your first language oh uh, yeah i do not speak as a first language but i understand and i can survive in a hindi speaking city oh yeah it always shocks me when i say something in hindi <laughs> i really get a kick out of your comment about the front load washing machine <laughs> is something that that's where everyone wants to get to uh, actually I, our family would be considered affluent and we only recently got a front loading washing machine because my wife enjoyed the uh, top loading which worked for a long time but that might uh, be interesting for our audience and uh, how many of them might still have top loaders even though clearly the front loader has uh, proved advantageous for a number of reasons let's get back to uh, energy poverty we're going to see energy poverty in the UK and and really all around the world uh in this uh, coming winter with a reduction of fossil fuels uh many many areas uh, are going to be short on energy and there uh, there's expected that in many areas it's going to be energy or food obviously uh food is going to come first but in the united kingdom they're very concerned of the coming winter now uh, you work sometimes in the united kingdom do you have any knowledge of what they're feeling may be coming this winter 
yeah i mean during my research in uh, in the past 3 to 4 years i found out that there was a, a intentional effort in the mainstream media to ignore uh, the energy poverty that existed in uk because uh, there are a lot of uh, old age homes and uh, households which couldn't afford heating and energy i'm talking about 2018 19 20 uh, even before the pandemic so uh, this news did not reach mainstream media and it was a few institutions uh, like the global warming policy foundation that were bringing this truth out uh, about how people were suffering in energy poverty and uh, this year looks really bleak and uh, that's because of the global uh, war on fossil fuels and uh, since you brought up uk i have to mention france which is seeing unprecedented rise in electricity prices uh, especially the price uh, at the generating point so we are talking about levels that the country has never seen in the past 30 years and uh, it is expected that the coming winter will be worse for france uh, we keep hearing about germany but france is in a much much worse condition uh, and then germany and uk this will be the worst affected this coming year Uh, and we must also highlight that uh, that there is energy poverty in the us as well uh, not just in the winter uh, in the summer too uh, those in energy poverty cannot afford air conditioners or uh, cooling mechanisms or or uh, housing spaces where uh, they can be well ventilated so energy poverty uh, exists both during the summer and the winter but uh, we all know that uh, winter kills more people than summer and uh, like uh, i was working with an unnamed uh, which i will not name an alarmist organization a uh, couple of years back and and uh, the person who was leading the organization he himself told me that uh, the cold kills more people than heat so people across the board are aware of this it's just that uh, when it comes to communicating to people through mainstream media and through the pol- political pulpits uh, this information is uh, put under the carpet if i can say it in that way so it is a important issue to talk about not just the energy poverty in africa and asia but energy poverty in this coming winter is going to be big and uh, we're already seeing that at at the gas stations in the us yeah mm. wow you you'd laugh to hear that here in ottawa canada which is the seventh coldest capital city in the world in their climate change plan they're only planning for adapting to warming they don't say anything about cooling which some people say is actually more likely so here we are in ottawa canada super cold and we're all worried about a bit of warming <laughs> it's it's ridiculous yeah well, actually I, yeah uh, if i might interrupt uh, i brought this issue up in couple of my op-eds where i talked about uh, municipalities and uh, towns across the northern hemisphere which have become lukewarm in the preparation of winter every year uh, resulting in less prepared teams and uh, people uh, uh, unable to access roads and so and so so uh, this lackluster approach towards cooling is something that has to be mentioned yeah, mm-hmm. yeah i exactly. would say that very close to 100% of our audience is aware that man caused climate change global warming is a hoax it's a fraud perpetrated essentially by people that uh, want to increase their power in government over the uh, the people now you've described some very bad things that are going to happen uh, this winter and uh, i know tom and i totally agree with that 
do you think it'll have an impact on bringing people to their senses? Because it would appear the majority of citizens have bought into the, the hoax and are actually concerned with carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuels when in fact it's the carbon dioxide in our atmosphere that allows life on earth. It allows plants to grow and animals to feed on them and us to feed on the plants and the animals. It's insane that they've turned the world upside down. I mean, carbon dioxide is the molecule of life in the last 40 years since it increased from 280 parts per million in World War II to around 420 now, uh, over 20% more of the earth has turned green. Do you think a, a difficult winter will play a role in bringing people to their senses? Well, uh, I'm going to call this now. I'm going to make a statement. They will again use this winter when it becomes very harsh and turn it around and say that it's still climate change that is causing this extreme winter. So this, this has been their method. And uh, when more and more snow came, they said we are getting more snow because of global warming. But a decade ago, they said there will be less snow. So uh, they will keep improvising. Uh, I, I'm not so confident that uh, there will be a turnaround that people will uh, be uh, awakened from their uh, climate apocalypse, uh, you know? So, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah. there isn't any question they will continue to lie until they lose the battle that I don't know whether it's going to be 5, 10, or 20 years, they will tell lies in an effort to subjugate the population to a lack of energy that the government would control I think there's got to be a point where the population no longer accepts those lies. It's my hope as well. <laughs> but I'm just surprised. Like I lived in Delhi a couple of years ago and I've been uh, monitoring the winter temperatures in the India's capital. And we've had historic lows for the past four to five years. And uh, But then the narrative uh, stays just for a day or two. And then the media switches back onto the global warming stuff. So, nice. so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful as well uh, that uh, when it hits people's purses and, and when there is darkness around you, you realize what's happening. And we yeah. hope that this winter will be a wake-up call, yeah. Yeah, let's hope so. Well, you we have to go for a commercial break now. So our guest today is Vijay J. Araj, a research associate with the CO2 Coalition. So stay tuned, we'll be right back. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulpidone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. 
So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com where we're healing America one person at a time. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. It's summertime. Ready for your vacation to the beach, the lake, or the mountains? But what about your accommodations? Ever wonder what germs were left behind by the previous guests? Kathy G. from Tulsa says the Genesis Fogger gives her peace of mind and confidence when traveling. With Genesis, she knows that the air and surfaces in her vacation rental are free of bacteria and viruses left behind by the previous occupants. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. We're back with our guest, Vijay Jayaraj, Research Associate with the CO2 Coalition. He's speaking to us from India at around 10.30 at night his time. So, Jay, you had a question for Vijay. Well, I've got a lot, uh, but uh, first I want to clarify and talk a little more about the climate change uh, hoax. The push to expand India's reliance on coal would seem to mean your native home is not buying into the man caused climate change fraud. Uh, how would you explain the nation's attitude toward this now? Uh, well, countries like India and China are increasingly realizing that they are not feeling the impact of climate at home. For instance, if we are to get into the shoes of an official who's in charge of generating electricity and importing and providing oil for 1.3 billion people, and at the same time, he's, uh, he, he also has colleagues who are working into the climate stuff. So uh, he would want to know what's the reality. And as far as India is concerned, we've had a healthy rainfall uh, that has been helping our agricultural system, enabling us to produce record crop production year after year, unprecedented crop production. So the countries from uh, North America and Europe are asking India to continue to export wheat. Uh, so we not only have wheat and rice and pulses for 1.3 billion people, but we are also exporting. We are a major exporter. And if you look at the cyclones, there is no major increase in the major cyclones that are hitting India. Uh, I've, I've written op-eds on this. And it is in official documents that, uh, that we see that there is no increase in extreme weather events here in India. Yeah. And, and uh, if you are going to uh, consider China, our neighbors, they've actually had two decades of cooling in some parts. For example, no Northeast China has been cooling since the year 1998. So for a person uh, in, in the highest level of government to tackle the climate problem, they have to look at it pragmatically, very practically. And uh, they don't see uh, any alarm in the impact of climate, at least when it comes to India. So, uh, but also they are faced with making sure that more and more people come out of poverty. Just for the audience in the Western Hemisphere to understand, uh, just a couple of months of uh, COVID lockdown pushed more than 100 million people into abject poverty. 
so so we had households uh, not knowing where their bread would come from for uh, for the next week so that was a situation over here so in developing countries they try to be as practical as possible fortunately india and china uh, are kind of superpowers uh, so that's why they are able to you know ward off too much pressure from the western countries when it comes to the use of fossil fuels Mm-hmm. Here in Ottawa, our politicians are clearly afraid of environmental activists. In fact, they declared a climate emergency when there was a massive protest going on outside the council chambers. Are the politicians in India not so frightened then of the climate activists? Uh, not really. I w- I wouldn't comment too much on that because when it comes to protests and the freedom to protest, I think India is on a different scale when it come when compared to the Western countries. Uh, but still, people are allowed to protest, and we have a lot of child climate activists uh, modeling themselves after uh, Greta Thunberg. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, but they make a very uh, extraordinary claims on climate and everything. Uh, for instance if there is a, a flooding event in a city in india due to poor drainage facilities in the city they blame it on climate so things like that happen again and again here as well uh, but the government is not pressurized because we have a strong uh, government at this point uh, in when i mean strong i mean majority so they are able to push ahead with their uh, energy policies mm-hmm. and uh, yeah yeah i wish our politicians were as courageous <laughs> Uh, I would agree. Now, India did sign the the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, from everything you've uh, uh, said this hour, VJ, it sounds like the government is pretty much ignoring the fact that it's part of the uh, Paris Agreement to reduce greenhouse gases. Yeah, uh, I I've always had a different uh, opinion on India, China, and the likes of them signing the Paris Accord. because the paris accord does not have a self determined target for these countries rather when the accord was signed each of these countries submitted their commitments in a form of a document called nationally determined contribution or commitment i forgot so that document uh, lists the commitment that these countries are going to have to the paris accord unfortunately both india and china have not sold their own soul to paris accord they have made sure ensured that uh, their domestic energy sector is not affected by the paris accord uh, rather in my opinion both these giants uh, which has collectively 2.6 billion people they have adopted a twin strategy of installing renewable energy expanding uh, renewable energy capacity but at the same time increasing their fossil intake uh, mm-hmm. production consumption and import of coal for uh, oil and natural gas so it's a it's a twin strategy and india is doing that keeping the the western climate elites happy by installing more and more renewables but also sucking money from them i know many people uh, in the western hemisphere are not happy with the fact that taxpayer money from the governments there are being sent as renewable funding to developing countries uh so that's also there so so uh, this is a strategy that india has adopted that to install more and more renewables but to make sure their people 
do not suffer and their people slowly and steadily reach a point where they can at least live a life that people in the, in the western hemisphere had in the 1970s 80s and 90s so we are not talking about the current standards that the people are living there uh, we are talking uh, for people to have a basic home with washing machine and a fridge where they don't have to cook every 3 hours in a hot tropical condition so uh, the things that developing countries here are trying to do is uh, just basic stuff like they are trying to get their people out of abject poverty so mm-hmm. that requires them to not completely surrender to the paris accord and that's what exactly india has been doing yeah mm-hmm. that's great yes uh, to the benefit of our audience if i were to tell you that after 40 years of study i am 100% convinced that man's emissions of carbon dioxide from the use of hydrocarbon fuels have no impact whatever on our planet's temperature how would you respond to that i i i would respond by sharing my own opinion in my study as well uh, i have not found enough evidence to suggest that there is a you know linear relationship between human uh, anthropogenic carbon dioxide and ghc emission and kind of uh, rate of warming in the atmosphere that the climate alarmists are claiming uh, so uh, for instance uh, uh, there are a couple of people by by the name of beyond lomborg and michael schellenberger who been showing us that even if it were to be true even if the warming was to be true we are in a better position to tackle it and live a better life with the use of hydrocarbon fuels than uh, with be without using them uh, so uh, in so many ways uh, whatever permutations you make regarding this uh, there is no reason to uh, fear about climate and not uh, especially because of human emissions yeah mm-hmm. So it sounds like you should fear climate if you're not using hydrocarbon fuels because then you can't adapt to whatever happens. Yeah, exactly what's happening in uh, UK for the past couple of years where people who cannot afford, you know, expensive electricity from wind and solar, uh they are left without fossil fuels and cheap electricity. Yeah. Yeah, that's sad. How in your opinion, VJ, have what I call evil people managed to scare most of the world's population to believing that a little warming that is greening the earth is a bad thing <laughs> what has been their tactic that appears to have succeeded yeah i think whenever i try to point out the mechanisms through which uh, a global climate doomsday narrative was successfully accomplished uh, i can think of three avenues uh, one is the political institutions the other is academia and then you have the mainstream media so the political class fund the academia and there is a feedback from the academia back to the uh, political institutions uh, and they decide what narrative to bring about and then you have the mainstream media which takes it to the people so i think when you harness and weaponize all these three avenues i think there is very little a normal citizen can do and uh, so that is uh, that is how they uh, strategically made sure that a citizen without any information on climate uh, believes that the climate is getting worse mm-hmm. uh, so he does not have the data he has not studied uh, that the issue here is not 
that he he is not a well educated person the issue here is that to make a non educated person and a non informed person believe with all his heart that there is a serious warming and there is world is ending so that uh, is pretty a uh, big task to achieve and uh, yeah the media has just played along uh, no, no matter which side of political class you you are from you will find most of the media uh, selling out to the climate issue and they say that you know the world is getting bad Yeah, one of the leading editors here in Canada, I asked him, I said, why aren't you showing both sides of the climate science debate? And he said, oh, well, um, we, we agree with David Suzuki. And I said, but do you have anybody on staff who actually has a degree in science who can judge the different points of view? He said, no. So I said, well, why do you really do it? And he said, well, if we publicize your point of view, our advertisers would not like it. And I thought, well, okay, yeah, catastrophe sells media. and advertisers obviously want to see high circulation but the other point is this vj the people you know different car companies and and others are are using the climate scare to sell their products they're saying oh well you buy our product it's low greenhouse gases we're helping stop climate change and and you know they don't want somebody on the next page to say well you know the climate scare is nonsense so a lot of this is driven by money here in canada anyway Yeah, uh, well, I, yeah. Uh, as though I've been studying this for 40 years and remember so well in 1975 every American news magazine had a cover about an oncoming glacier because global cooling was the rage of the uh, the day then I actually learned more than I thought I knew last week at a uh, conference when a scientist by the name of Bonner Cohen uh, gave a lecture It was 65 minutes long and it was so brilliant that I'm actually transcribing and I had the good fortune of taking typing in high school and I'm now listening to a tape of his lecture and uh, transcribing and I will send it to you because he actually traced uh, the history of why it has infiltrated our universities, our schools, our corporate board rooms the boards of virtually every scientific society i never understood it all till i heard uh, his lecture and i when i finish transcribing in a couple of days i will send a copy of it but it is absolutely amazing as i'm saying i understand it now more than i have uh, in the pu- in the future now mm-hmm. one thing that our audience may not understand they're hearing the, the term net zero Many nations are stupidly trying to have no carbon dioxide emissions. They're calling it net zero. How do they not realize that eliminating carbon dioxide emissions will bring the atmosphere's CO2 content down to where life on earth could not exist? Yeah, uh I I've dedicated a lot of time uh to capture the uh growth in agriculture and across across the globe. uh i'm i'm especially uh, sensitive to that because i've had uh, grandparents who lived through a famine in my country and uh, we had uh, norman borlaug uh, uh, the great scientist come in here in the 1970s and uh, since then india had a green revolution uh, and and my uh, parents and my extended family everybody uh, is in agriculture so it's a close to my heart so uh, it was very natural for me to uh, investigate on this and the more and more uh, research papers you read on the impact of 
global CO2 atmospheric concentration on the regreening of the planet. The more and more people will understand that CO2 is a uh, is a boon, not a bane. It's an elixir of life. So, just for the audience who might not understand, uh, the Earth was in a little ice age uh, in the 16th century. And uh, contrary to popular opinion, it was indeed global because a lot of studies from ranging from Africa to Asia, uh, of course, uh, most of uh, Europe and uh, Canada and all these places were in a state where vegetation uh, suffered and a lot of plant died. Uh, but the in the in the subsequent centuries, late 17th uh, and 18th and 19th century, there was a, a, a tremendous increase in uh, temperature and carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere. And of course, the uh, emissions peaked in the recent uh, 150 years, and we have a, a unprecedented, uh, not unprecedented, I, what I mean to say is historic levels uh, for the past three centuries. So all this has actually helped not only the growth of forests, but also the food crops to grow better. And uh, one of the classic example is a greenhouse plantation uh, where uh, people grow plants uh, inside a greenhouse and uh, you have high elevated CO2 levels uh, to make the plant grow faster. And uh, it is very uh, common sense. It's unfortunate that what, what was supposed to be a, a grade six, grade seven a school learning material has now been hijacked and uh, completely turned around. And uh, I, I'm not sure if you guys are aware, uh, there was an attack on Patrick Moore in the media this week in British Columbia uh, about a liberal MP supporting him. Uh, and uh, it involved uh, uh, one of the member of parliament saying that CO2 is a poison, like it's, it, it's damaging our earth. So, uh, so we've come to a state where uh, people would laugh at you if you say CO2 is the elixir of life. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, but contrary to that, it is the elixir of life. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting, Vijay, this group 350.org, they want to change our CO2 level from 420 down to 350. But it strikes me that we've actually fed a lot of the world because of our higher CO2. So if we were to return CO2 down to 350 and get less crop yield, wouldn't that result in actually more people being pushed into starvation? Yeah, yeah, uh, that is the likely scenario. But at this point, I'm I'm confused because there is a concurrent or I would say simultaneous war on nitrous oxide as well. Uh, you can right. you can see what's happening in Netherlands and what's happening in Canada as well. There's a war on fertilizers, and uh, so it's not just CO2 emissions. It's quite questionable as to why uh, the same people who are uh, <laughs> promoting a climate doomsday are also the same people who are against the fertilizer use and the use of products that actually give us higher yield. So uh, th these things uh, need a closer inspection and the, uh, and the public should not be sleeping on this. Uh, they should be awake. And uh, since what's happening, we, we saw that with Sri Lanka, which went 100% uh, into or organic agriculture and uh, they banned all the fertilizers and the tea plantations and uh, other farmers there had a more than 50% reduction in yield uh, as soon as the government 
banned fertilizers so these things should be talked about more in the coming days because 2022 seems to be the year where there is a war on uh, agriculture as well and uh, i i heard in the news that there was an episode uh, in canada where uh, a private farm was not allowed to sell their products directly to the consumers and the government wanted them to do it through you know official channels like that was a controversy as well so it's hard for me to uh, understand if the climate alarmists would be bothered at all when the eels come <laughs> that is where i was trying to get it i want to get uh, ask you a, a personal question i know you spent a year at east anglia university in the united kingdom and uh, people may recall a tremendous scandal that was at that university relating to the cover up of data showing the earth was not warming uh were you there uh, about that time can you tell us anything about it yeah uh, so i was a student there doing my masters in environmental sciences i joined the university in 2009 and it was exactly the same year when the climate gate scandal happened so uh, it happened at the university's climatic research unit which was a, a stone's throw away from the classroom in which i was and it happened when i was in that classroom uh, during an afternoon i don't remember the exact day to be honest and so uh, it was a frantic week uh, we were asked to uh, since it was a email leak of uh, from the computers of scientists all the all the people uh, were instructed to change their emails of course is the security protocol but for viewers who do not uh, are not aware of the climate gate scandal uh, so this was an incident in 2019 uh, in uk at the university of east anglia which is located in norwich city yeah you say 2009 it was yeah yeah 2009 okay so yeah. uh, emails from uh, scientists in university of east anglia and i believe it was penn state university here in the us uh, mm-hmm. so the emails were leaked and uh, the entire list of emails are available online and it talks about ways a, uh, in which scientists were trying to make the current warming period appear unprecedented so it appears that uh, there were intentional efforts to make the past periods look much colder than they were and the present temperatures to look much warmer than they really are Uh, mm-hmm. so that was the whole issue about the mails so since then uh, it happened in 2009 uh, it's been 12 years uh, 13 years but uh, nothing has been done about that issue why is it significant because uh, these were the very same scientists who were in charge of uh, producing documents to the intergovernmental panel on climate change uh, the official scientific authority on whom governments and political leaders base their climate and energy policies on so wow. so there you have the you know uh, a few men in charge of deciding uh, big things on climate uh, adopted by big governments uh, trickling down to the average citizen impacting his energy use uh, impacting uh, what he has been told he or she is being told by the media on what climate is so wow. it has a lot of implications yeah yeah it's pretty corrupt that's for sure we're approaching where collectively nations have wasted more than a trillion dollars <clears throat> on uh, the climate change delusion Do you think that money could have been used to eliminate world poverty? I mean, give us your opinion about the fact that 
all of this money spent had no value at all. Yeah, I, I would uh, look at smaller subsections uh, uh, to understand uh, how how this money is being wasted. Uh, for instance, if you take US, the country was energy independent in 2019. But what happened is because of intentional uh, war against the fossil fuels, they again went back to a state way where they have to pay out money to import oil. So there you have a a developed western economy spending useless money because of a policy shift against fossil fuels and if you look at countries like india and china though they are resisting the western pressure or to not use fossil fuels they still spend a lot of time and energy on renewable energy uh, installations for instance china uh, in china 17 provinces more than 17 provinces had unprecedented electricity power blackouts in 2021 and this was due to coal shortage and if the government had been more careful spending more money in securing those coal which they did this year after they learned what happened last year they could have saved a lot of you know money last year in 2021 where uh, they lost uh, jobs uh, factories were shut down uh, even traffic lights did not work uh, that's, that was the situation there and uh, it pushes people again into poverty and uh, for, uh, speaking about my own country india like uh, we grew up in energy poverty in blackouts but today we are in a position where uh, we do not have to use our generators at all uh, uh, the blackouts are less frequent uh, but we do not want to go back into a state where uh, we are in blackouts so when talking about uh, small and middle income people and industries uh, they suffer a lot and uh, this overall suffering among the lower economic sections affects the overall gdp as well uh, because of less spending so uh, for a country to have a strong energy sector is key because it drives the energy uh, the economy and the gdp and it eventually results in more people coming out of poverty so when wow. when when looking at the energy sector if you're going to split your money or concentrate more on the renewable sector it's going to have its impact in different ways in different economies uh, it will be different here in india different uh, in us yeah mm-hmm, for sure we have to wrap up in about 30 seconds can you tell us briefly what your next projects are currently i'm i'm working with the co2 coalition uh, based in virginia uh, my next steps are to uh, continue educating people about the massive dilution that's happening and uh, to make sure that uh, voices from developing countries are heard in in the meeting rooms in uh, geneva and brussels and new york uh, so that at least there would be one or two elected representative which who will you know think and uh, change the policies yeah, yeah so that's, so that's, that's my goal yeah yeah well today's guest has been vj jaraj He's a research associate with the CO2 Coalition, and he's been living and working actually all over the world. And we've been hearing today about how India has taken a much more practical approach to the whole issue of climate change and energy. So thanks for being with us today, Vijay. That was great. Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure. Okay. Well, this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story. Music.